Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Ultraspeed Technologies, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call, 1-855-450-NOAH. or send your emails to live at AskNoahShow.com. My name is Noah Chalai. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off this hour. Huge apology to those who were here last week. Obviously, we did not have an episode. You probably figured that out by now. The reason was I was in the middle of an emergency. I have to do uh, my day job, and every once in a while, that requires my immediate hands on deck uh, and attention to a given problem. What came out of that is the following. We've been able to put together a short list of best tips and tricks when you're troubleshooting a network inside of an emergency style environment. Now, I've reached out to a couple of other folks in the community and suggested that we do another War Stories episode. And so that's going to be coming up uh, in the next few weeks. If you have an interest in participating with that, you have a war story to share, something that you've overcome, particularly something related to Linux or maybe where Linux saves the day, we'd love to hear from you. Send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. I'll take this as an opportunity to remind everyone that we're restructuring the way that we're doing feedback. We have somebody that goes in through our feedback. That's Steve Ovens from the community, sits there, spends his time reading through those, categorizes them so we can more accurately tailor the show to what you, the listener, are looking for. Again, you can join us anytime at 855-450-NOAH. That's 1-855-450-6624. The email, live at asknoahshow.com. Your calls go to the front of the line. John calls from California. Hey, John, welcome to the Ask Noah Show. Hey, thanks, Noah. Uh, I've actually, we were in a, a Matrix chat, and I told you that I was, I was listening to Ask Noah from episode one, and uh, that's the same person. Very cool. to call into the show this week. Yeah, and also the same John that wrote the email saying you have a soft spot for Red Hat that you responded to the other week. And Fant- I wanted to say thank you for responding to it. I didn't expect you to actually respond to it, but yeah, you did. Yeah, that is cool. And was most of my answer acceptable? Did that, that kind of make sense to you? Yeah, it makes sense. And I know, I like when I wrote the email, I'm like, I can sort of guess your answer because I've been listening to you long enough now that I can figure it out. It's like, mm-hmm. oh, but Red Hat does so much for open source. That's what his response is going to be. And so... That's what you said. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Nothing, not predictable, right? <laughs> yeah, so I have a few questions. I'll start with the easy one. Okay. Uh, having listened to older pop episodes of Ask Noah, you were not so sure about System 76's Pop, pop OS distro when they first announced it. I wonder what your latest thoughts on it were. 180 degrees. I flipped around 180 degrees, and, and here's why. At the time that System76 launched Pop! OS, it felt a lot like not invented here syndrome, right? This was right on the precipice of Ubuntu, Canonical coming out and saying, hey, we are going to switch over to the GNOME desktop environment from uh, from Unity. And, and instead of just embracing that and saying, hey, um, that's great. We think our customers would love uh, Gnome, and so we will support that or maybe offer some upstream changes to Canonical. They didn't do any of that. They went out and and, and did their entirely separate thing. And and at first, it, it, like I said, it really struck me as just it wasn't invented here, so we don't want it. 
very early on, like within the first few months, it became very clear to me that what they were doing was if they had to make a change, if they had to make a split, if something was going to force them to reset the expectations of their users and their expectation of what they deliver to their users, if they were going to go through that process, they were going to go through that process once and only once. And from there on out, they were going to maintain their own desktop environment in the event that Canonical decided to, 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 to change again. They're no longer tied at the hip uh, to that particular decision. Over the course of the next year, they began to, to, to include improvements to Pop! OS that simply didn't exist on any other, uh, any other operating system to include Canonical's Ubuntu with stock GNOME. And then, I, I, sometime last year, I believe it was, when they started to, when they started to really push tiling window managers and trying to find that balance between a graphical window environment and tiling window manager, I was, the hair on my, my head just was blown back because, for a long time, I've played with Xmonad. In fact, one of the machines that I do a lot of my daily work on runs Xmonad be- specifically because I find it to be a far more efficient way to navigate Windows and and be able to get work done. The problem is there are times where I just want to grab my mouse and go back to working. And I've always kind of struggled with, well, I wouldn't run a tiling window manager on everything because sometimes I do just want to grab my mouse. And most of the time, 80% of the time, I can muddle my way through with a typical window manager. But there's no question about it. When you go to a, a, a tiling window manager, it's just faster because everything are key commands. And System76 and Pop! OS finds that perfect balance and, 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 and delivered a desktop environment that was truly advantageous to somebody who was in a developer field or was really heavily using Linux. And so when I look at the value that they bring into the community and, and, and that they bring to that ecosystem, so now everybody that's working in sort of a scientific style uh, role from a university, research facilities, those kinds of places, they have a hardware vendor that makes machines born to run Linux. On top of that, they have a UI and an operating system that is particularly tailored to that kind of user. It's not just emulating Windows. It's not emulating Mac OS. It's not some crazy new thing. They are tailoring it around their users. That is System76 serving their users well. And so now we get, you know, however many years, I, I think that was 2017 is when they made that change. Now we're three years into it. If you look at what ha- – there are people that download Pop! OS and don't necessarily have anything to do with a System76 computer and still want to run Pop! OS uh, – because it has brought that much added value into the community. So, yeah, I, w- I would tell you that I started 100% against it. I wasn't even really willing to try it. I thought, if I, I don't really need GNOME with a different theme. Thanks anyway. Um, it has, I, I couldn't have been more wrong. Yeah. Yeah, that's, uh, that's, that's, uh, that's true. And that's why I went back to GNOME with uh, Pop! OS on my computer was because of the tiling. I love the tiling and the, Ability to just turn yeah. it off and have normal the normal windows for a while and then turn it back on. But I, I had some technical questions too, if you have time. Sure. Uh, so I started a little home lab with a few Raspberry Pis, and I've been using Docker and Docker Compose to run the stuff I want to try. And I started syncing locally to get myself off of Dropbox and other cloud services. Anyways, for those Docker containers, I use the user add you know, basic function to add a user to the dark, to the, the OS. And mm-hmm. I didn't set a password for it. Is it like, I don't want the the user I'm creating to be able to log into the computer because it's for the Docker image that's running. 
that has no pseudo access for security reasons. But is it more secure not to set a password on a new user, or should I set a really big password that no one can guess? Or like I have Bitwarden to generate a 64 character password if that's better to do. Yeah, I mean, obviously, if you don't need password authentication for anything, I would just remove it. However, um, I, I have if you if you shut SSH if well. So let's start here. If you don't have SSH access on open to the world, which you're kind of crazy if you do, um, if, if you if you shut that off and you I'll, – I'll back up. It doesn't really matter what things are running or not running. The end of the day is anytime you have an added ve- or an added avenue for an attacker to use, there, there's a possibility for them to use it. Now, uh, I would ordinarily tell you that if you have a long enough password, it technically shouldn't matter, Right. But that doesn't take into account the fact that every once in a while there comes a, a security vulnerability that that shakes stuff up. And so a few weeks ago, there was a security vulnerability that allowed people to elevate sudo access uh, simply by bashing on the keyboard. Um, so those kinds of unpredictable, unexpected events lead me to tell you that if you don't need the password, I would remove it altogether. All right. And if I, if I do a user ad and I give it a username, what does the system do by default? Like, by by default, it, yeah. I given it a password yet. By default, it will block login and won't let you. And, and and there is no password set. Once you once you set a password, then then you'll be able to log in and and use that account. So actually, what it does by default is actually what I wanted. So that's good. And then the the last question I have for you is. I bind my Docker image to a port, like port 80, so the website is visible, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, like, it, when I used to run Windows, like, you have to go into the Windows firewall and say, allow traffic for port 80 through, and that would enable you to see the website from another computer on the same network. Mm-hmm. But once I bind the port 80 from the Docker image to the host, other computers on the network can see it. I'm like, wait, just by binding to the port, it opens up to everyone. Does that make sense to you? Is that so? Supposed to be doing? Run, run that by me one more time. You so when you when you bind, like let's say you have so let's you Docker run tac p eighty colon eight thousand nginx right. So we've taken eighty and ported port it to yep. port eighty eighty on nginx. Um, that will be visible yep. to anything outside. It, that will be immediate to the to the immediate network on the inside of the firewall that that Docker host is connected to, if that makes sense. Yeah, that, that's like, you, I'm on the same Ethernet, uh, Ethernet hub or switch as the Raspberry Pi, and I say, go to the IP address of the Raspberry Pi port 80, and it works mm-hmm. because I bound to the host IP address. Yep. Is that expected, or yes. am I doing is something weird? No. No, that, that that because that's what you want, right? If you have something running on port eighty, and you're and you're wanting to in the Docker container, and you want to pass that through out to the out to the real network, um, yeah, you you would expect that to be accessible on on the network. And if you create a uh, if you created a forwarding rule or a, a hole in your firewall, you'd expect that to be available on the internet. In the Windows world, you you start running something on port eighty, and you still have to go into Windows firewall and say, no, you're going to allow traffic in for for port eighty. Even though, well, okay. Like, so, to comparing apples to apples, if you, the, I'm assuming that you don't have UFW or something running on the host machine. But in the, in the event that you did, uh, let's say your host machine was running 
uh, a firewall and you and you 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 pass the port through to the docker container in in that scenario you wouldn't you would not be able to access it from outside of the machine until just like in windows where you create a manual rule to say allow traffic in on your host machine you'd also have to create a rule to let traffic in yeah that makes sense thanks for the clarification and thanks for the wonderful show i'm up to like Episode 44 in my backlog of, re- of listening, so awesome. I have a long time to read and uh, hey, listen. Hey, you know what? I really appreciate you uh, you calling in, and thanks for listening to the show. You're welcome. Yeah, okay. You give me a call back if you have any other questions. 855-450-NO. That's 855-450-6624. Of course, the email, live at com. Our first email this week comes in from Vadim. He writes in and says... We do, in fact, support VR. Now, this is in response to our Vercadia episode a few weeks ago. Uh, the guy reached out and said, hey, we do, in fact, support Steam VR. And so we do have VR on Linux. It's just that in my particular case, I was an early adopter that started on the Oculus Kickstarter. And uh, and, and back then, Linux was sort, sort of supported. And so I felt quite naturally into the Oculus system. And at this point, unfortunately, I don't have VR on Linux myself, which is why I need to ask one of our amazing contributors to make a video for me of VR on Linux. I thought you might be interested in, at the time they sent the email, upcoming talk at Fosdom. He links to Fosdom.org slash 2021 schedule event slash Vercadia. That's going to be an incredible introduction on how to create content, script, host a server. Feel free to reach out to me for any questions that you might have. Random, and I'm going to butcher your last name, but I'm going to try Trikoshkli. Uh, thank you so much for, for reaching out and, and making the correction. We certainly appreciate it. Uh, I know that Fosdom does publish those videos online, so if you'd like to go back and watch them retroactively, you can certainly do that. Additionally, I will reach out and, uh, and, and invite Adam on the show, and, and we can have that discussion. Our second email comes in from Joel. Joel writes in and says, Hey, Noah, I have bought a domain name with my actual name, but I'm not sure quite what to do with it. What's the next step for having a presence online independently from social media sites and possibly generate a side hustle income, at least to cover the hosting costs? Also, how do you redirect services to your own domain, self-hosted and otherwise? Side note, have you heard anything about buying a domain forever? I've seen registers named epic.com, and they have the option available for a significant sum of money. What are your thoughts, Joel? So I'll work backwards. As far as buying a domain forever, there was a company at one time that was advertising lifetime VPSs. And I thought, as did many people, that doesn't seem sustainable. But alas, it was, you know, a few hundred bucks and you bought it and then you had that VPS for life. So I did that as did a lot of other people. Unsurprisingly, it only took a few years before there was no new revenue coming in. The VPSs didn't work particularly well because there was no revenue coming in. And the company, which had a very poor reputation to begin with and a very poor user experience, uh, eventually came back out and said, I'm sorry, we can't honor that. And you're going to have to pay if you want to keep using your VPS, which of course I not so politely declined. Um, So my answer to you or my thought process on that is I would be very hesitant of anything that that claims that they have a lifetime registration. And if they do have a lifetime registration, likely what they are doing is banking on the amount of time that you're going to want that domain, adding the 14 bucks or whatever it is that costs them to register the register that domain for however period of long time that you're going to have it. And they're playing a statistic or they're playing a game of, of odds, just like insurance companies do. Um, so uh, you could go that route, and I suppose always transfer your domain if if you didn't want to. But uh, register for less, rfrl.com. Register a domain for fourteen dollars. 
uh, and they give you points every time you register a domain. You can take your points and renew other domains. So I, I've had a very good experience with them. They're very inexpensive, and uh, so I don't see a lot of I don't see a lot of value in registering a domain for life. If I'm being honest. Now, as to your your original question about buying a domain and using your name and and how to tie up services. So I'll start with this. You said that you used your real name. I also bought a domain with my real name. A few months after purchasing a domain with my real name, I now regret purchasing a domain with my real name because there is the privacy aspect of it, right? Anybody that I send mail from my domain, anybody that I direct to my domain, anything I do with my domain has my real name tied to it. Now, it's not so much that I want to be totally incognito, right? Because a simple whose record is going to at least give some information as to how you can go about tracking down that person. Of course, I paid with the domain with my credit card, so it's be easy, a debit card, I should say. It would be easy enough to go track me down for a highly motivated individual following the proper process. But still, there is a certain level of anonym, uh, of, uh, there, there's a, there is a, there's a certain value, I guess, I should say, in, in, in having, in, in staying anonymous. And you do that when you pick a domain that doesn't rat you out right off of the at sign. Okay. So I'll start there. And I start there because I wish somebody had asked me those questions before I started setting stuff up on my domain, because now I feel inclined to move them off of a domain that doesn't use my name. Anyway, how do you actually redirect services to your domain? Well, the easiest way to go down that road is to use A records. A records are the DNS server's way of pointing subdomains or the main domain to a specific IP address. So, for example, if I purchased the domain, I own the domain asknoahshow.com. So the A record for asknoahshow.com or just the at sign, which is the, the parent domain, redirects to www. It's a C name, actually. Redirects to www.asknoahshow.com. www.asknoahshow.com is redirected to an IP address that is on our hosting provider, which happens to be registered for less because they host the domain for us for free. If I wanted to change where the site was hosted, if, like, say, for example, I wanted AltaSpeed Technologies to host the website for AskNoahShow.com, I would reach out, I'd have them set up the server, and then once the server's set up, they would give me an IP address, and I would then change the www uh, to point to the new A record, www.AskNoahShow.com, the www being the um, the subdomain that that the subdomain of AskNoahShow.com. Now, we can have other subdomains as well, right? We can have mail.asknoahshow.com. We could have imap.asknoahshow.com, smtp.asknoahshow.com. We can have things like chat or element.asknoahshow.com, synapse.asknoahshow.com, nextcloud.asknoahshow.com. And so as you add services to your domain, you can simply create A records. And if, when you create an A record and that IP address, then you have a DNS mapping to that particular server service all under your domain. Now, there's a second way that you can go about doing it. That's the cleanest way because each subdomain has its own A record for each separate service. And so they're separate servers, but they're all tied together with this one massive uh, TLD. The other way that I've seen it done is you can use redirect. So you could have, for example, asknoahshow.com slash uh, get involved and get involved then forward you to that part of the server or a different server um, that has different web content hosted. The uh, the advantage of doing it this way is that all of your resources are under the domain that you control. And so when you give out an email 
at mydomain.com, you don't ever have to worry about a particular service vendor or service provider cutting you off. You don't have to worry about Google saying that your content can't be there or Twitter saying your content can't be there because guess what? Your Mastodon instance is hosted at social.mydomain.com or mastodon.mydomain.com, right? And so that instance for you exists as long as you continue to pay the bill to the server company and the company that you've registered your domain for. Um, so that that's how I would go about doing that. If you have any specific questions on like where to get started, how to get started, you can write those in. I would always suggest starting with the web server. The reason that I suggest always starting with the web server is that many of the principles that apply to web servers apply to anything else you want to host. And oftentimes, this is in the case of Element and Synapse and Matrix and those kinds of things, also is going to require a certain level of configuration of Nginx to get everything else to work. So starting with Nginx just by serving web pages and understanding how... Uh, virtual hosts inside of nginx work and how a records and dns works what you can and can't do the number of times that we get i get asked from a client or even a technician they'll say hey is it possible to set it up so that you know chat.asknoahshow.com specifies a port um and no that's not a function of a records and so you can do that a couple of different ways with an apache redirect but no you cannot specify ports uh, in, in, inside of, uh, DNS A records. Um, so that, that's how you'd get started. Like I say, if you have any specific questions, email us live at asknoahshow.com. We'll try and answer that. Uh, Richard writes in and says, hello, Noah. Greetings from the Netherlands. I love your show. I, I've been doing Linux, I think, for the past 25 years as a professional, but I still have a lot to n learn. Like you know, in the IT, there's always something new. I heard you talking about MSSQL. And did you know that I can also run that in Linux, even in a Linux Docker container? I tried it some time ago because I had a customer with Red Hat, a OBDC connection to a Windows MS SQL server, and there were some performance issues. So I was trying to do an analysis to understand the Windows stuff because I'm not much of a Windows engineer. I just spun up a Vagrant MS SQL box for backup uses. I do have a few solutions. Of course, rsync, mostly in combination with snapshots for backup site, but also rdiff backup. This is a great little tool. It's much like rsync, but it contains history. Your latest backup is always a normal file structure, so you can simply use anything to copy it back. For customers, we use backup PC and Vim. Now, it's unfortunately not open source, but I myself use Riddick with rclone to backup my laptop for a VPN and SSH connection to a Linux server in our data center. Restic makes it easy to use client for site encryption, and that's what I, of course, prefer with my laptop. Best regards, Richard. Hey, Richard, thanks a lot for writing in. Thanks a lot for the tips. As we continue to drill through backup solutions, uh, I would invite you to send those in at live at asknoahshow.com. Coming up uh, sometime in the, in the not-so-distant future, I would like to do an episode focusing on all the backup solutions that exist and what ones work. Up until now, we at Altuspeed Technology, we've primarily stuck with rsync mostly because the the kind of work that we end up doing with clients um they don't they don't see the back end they don't want to see the back end they don't want to hear about the back end and so everything is mapped with nfs and rsync kind of makes sense there our pick of the week this week is zombie tracker zombie tracker gps abbreviated ztgps now this is a lightweight linux kde native 
application that satisfies the same purpose as Garmin's Basecamp. If you use that software, it allows you to uh, it, it's it's targeted really at cyclists and runners, hikers, those kinds of things. Um, and the idea is it collects GPS tracks from a handheld unit. Um, most of them are, are, are Garmin, but it works with other GPS units that store data and transmit it in the same way. And this runs on Linux because obviously Garmin's Basecamp does not. Now, I, when I see this stuff, when I see Basecamp come out, when I see Garmin, I always look at it in the store and I think to myself, well, that looks amazing. It's too bad I'm going to have to sell my firstborn to be able, in terms of privacy in order to be able to use this, right? And so those tools just, I just assume are not available to me. Well, now they are. And they have a wide variety of support, as I said, for physical units, mostly Garmin, but others that support the same format. Zombie Tracker GPS, also known as ZTGPS, can manage collections of GPS tracks from biking, hiking, rafting, light aircraft, automobile trips, snowboarding, and other activities. It features local data storage, which means there's no data or monetization. Advanced sorting query capabilities let you manage and organize your data with a highly customizable user interface. ZTGPS is written for the KDE desktop, but will work on other desktops, as well as KDE and QT libraries are available. So it supports things like charting, graphing, you can visually see things like elevation, speed, profiles, those kinds of things. It also supports, and I thought this was a particular note, live GPS through the GPS daemon. You can learn more at gpsd.gitlab.io slash gpsd. Now, gpsd in and of itself is a fantastic application. It runs a small daemon on Linux, and essentially what it's doing is providing data from a USB GPS, real-time data. And so it occurs to me that something like this or a collection of these tools could be used uh, to... I guess, emulate or replace a whole host of other things that proprietary software are doing. Everything from putting them in work vehicles so that you can track where those work vehicles have been or start gathering data metrics on how long does it take somebody to perform a service call, be at a service call, uh, what is the average speed, all of those things that you would like to take advantage of, or at least I would like to take advantage of, but don't want to necessarily work with a company that could potentially sell that data or have access to that data. Uh, this is a way to go about doing that. Uh, Zombie Tracker has a fantastic looking UI. I've only had a chance to play with it for a little bit, and I'm not really sure of what the use case is for me personally yet. I don't do a lot of running or hiking or rafting. It was 40 below zero here in North Dakota. So, um, yeah, I haven't really seen much of outside, and when I have, it hurts. But when I get outside and have a chance to play with this more, I certainly will. Fantastic pick of the week. Our gadget of the week this week is the... Black Magic Deck Link Duo. So those of you that have followed the show for any length of time know that I've been a huge proponent of Magwell USB capture devices. And I've been a huge proponent of Magwell USB capture devices because they work flawlessly on Linux. You plug them in, you don't need a driver. It simply shows up as a webcam. And so it presents itself to Linux the same way a USB webcam would work. The difference is, at the other end of the Magwell, it has an HDMI connector, and so you can feed it a normal HDMI feed from any professional camera. And that was a game changer back at the time that it came out because there weren't a lot of other uh, capture devices that worked on Linux. Now, recently, as we've as we've as you can imagine, churches and businesses all want to be more remote, and so there's never been a higher demand. 
to have uh, remote capabilities and being able to do uh, video streaming and those kinds of things with professional cameras or professional video switchers uh, than there is today. And of course, we, anytime we want to deploy a solution like that, are of course always trying to do that on Linux. And so recently we put together a machine using the Blackmagic DeckLink Duo. Now, this is the professional version of the Blackmagic. They make it in two ver versions. They make an HDMI version and an SDI version. If you're not familiar with what SDI is, SDI is a professional version of HDMI. So it's basically HDMI without all of the copy protection. And so the idea is that it's just sending an HD video signal. Now, on top of that, uh, on top of the, of, of the spec for H, or excuse me, on top of the spec for SDI, they also use a different kind of connector. Instead of having plug-in HDMI cables that can either become damaged or snapped, it uses a far more robust BNC locking connector, which is what you'd want inside of a professional uh, setting. Now, the the what really stood out to me, first of all, the Black uh, Blackmagic DeckLink Duo works flawlessly on Linux. You do have to download an additional driver package, so it doesn't work out of the box, but their utility uh, makes it work flawlessly with Linux. On top of that, because it's using SDI, you need to use SDI cables to connect in between video sources and the computer. Well, there's a, you can, of course, go just buy SDI cables, or you can make them. You can make SDI cables by using RG6 quad-shielded quad uh, coax cable and just fitting them with Belden BNC uh, ends, and that functions as an SDI cable. Works great with Linux. Again, you have to install the di driver, but it is flawless. And the the thing that really stood out to me over the Magwell, so you run into this issue when you start to do USB PC, USB capture. Here's how that works. You plug it in the first time you're super excited. Hey, look, my camera shows up. That's fantastic. Great. Then you plug in a USB audio device. Hey, look, now my audio and my video is showing up. Great. And then one or both or all of them stop working because what happened? The computer ran out of USB bandwidth. So how do we get around that? We use a quad bus USB card. This is a PCI card that slots into the computer and has four separate USB controllers on the card. Each one of those controllers is tied to its own USB slot. Therefore, every single capture USB interface that you're plugging in to every one of those said USB ports is on its own USB controller. Thus, we alleviate the problem of running out of USB bandwidth. Problem with that is, A, it's kind of hokey. B, you've got all these USB connectors coming out the side and then all these dongles hanging out the back of the computer, which isn't great. Um, and C, it's still not a flawless solution. It works 95% of the time, but not 100% of the time. Well, the Blackmagic DeckLink Duo, so far as it's been running in production for the past, uh, going on three, four months now, no problems whatsoever. It's flawless compared to those USB devices. The quality is much higher. The construction is much higher. And again, not so happy that you have to install separate software, but the capacity is, is, is just much better. You get four, excuse me, you get two inputs, you get two outputs, uh, and both of those are on a PCI card. So there's no reason to have to uh, use a separate PCI card that, that translates to USB and then use connectors and dongles and all that. The only downside is you're going to have to convert from HDMI to SDI if you don't have a professional camera. Now, you can buy inexpensive converters that are just under $100. Uh, probably the good ones are between $100 and $200. Um, but the Blackmagic Deck Link Duo, if you're looking to get into broadcasting on Linux, it's one you definitely want to check out. In the news this week, the GNOME team is considering several major changes for the experience and the design of GNOME 40. Now, this is something we've talked about once or twice on the show. Well, 
they have gone ahead and conducted research projects to better understand what users expect out of their desktop environment. Now, they conducted six research projects. They ran alongside the development and design efforts, and they really wanted to seek out and answer some of the questions they had at each stage of the design process. Now, most of these studies were smaller. They used these smaller studies and with some exercises to gather enough information so that they could purchase some research from a company that does it professionally and really hone how they can deliver the best experience to their users. Right now, the data contains personal information. The data company that they worked with uh, treated them very well and gave them access to all of the original data so they have the opportunity to conduct their own analysis of the data. They're also going to condense that data, anonymize it, and then they're going to release a version of that data sometime in the future. Their research started by conducting exploratory interviews. Essentially, what they wanted to understand was how users felt about GNOME Shell. They approached users that had experience with GNOME for a good long time. They experienced, they approached users that had no previous experience with GNOME, and they basically asked them, how is this working? There was a wide variety of technical expertise involved, and the participants all said, they really liked the minimal design and lack of distractions. Anybody that's used GNOME for more than five seconds has figured out it's a fairly intuitive uh, desktop environment to get started with because there's really nothing to distract you other than clicking on the activities menu. And, of course, they have improved that in GNOME 40. The initial behavioral study got some insight into numbers on app window management and workspace usage. This was a particular interest to me because... Back when I was a gnome, when I was an everyday gnome user, I really struggled to understand the correct way to use gnome. And so it was very helpful to me that the gnome team communicated that because it allowed me to understand the way that they wanted me to use their desktop environment. And indeed, when you use gnome the way that gnome wants you to use gnome, it's a fairly pleasant experience. It wasn't for that whole single issue threading thing. Um, the average user they found had eight windows open. A number of people had substantially higher number of windows, but those people were fairly low. It was the outliers. It was not the vast majority of people. They also found that most people used a single workspace. This doesn't surprise me. Anybody who lives in Linux, particularly those of us who lived in Linux in the late 90s, early 2000s, were really showing off what Compass could do. And back in those days, you had multiple desktop uh, you have multiple workspaces, even if you didn't use them, you put stuff on them just so you can show off to your friends and colleagues and say, hey, look at this, I can spin my cube around and that's what I'm working on over here and that's what I'm working over there. And then some of us kind of got drawn into that and went, I don't know how I can go back to working without workspaces. Um, but the average user they found doesn't use them. Stay on one workspace and they 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 hang there. And, and I suspect that a large portion of that is because when you start incorporating other workspaces, unless you have a philosophy or a design approach like I'm always going to have email in Workspace 2, web browsing is Workspace 1, terminals are Workspace 3. Unless you've designed something like that from yourself, you're going to forget where what you were working on is on what workspace. Uh, they found that most people, uh, again, used a single workspace, running apps from the dash. Um, they wrote an extension to remove running apps from the dash, and they told their users... Record any issues, anything that comes up. Most people found that they were fine with with running apps, without running apps in the dash. Now, for the time being, they're going to keep running apps based on reports that they'd seen elsewhere. 
in the insight and experimentation, uh, or excuse me, the company that they hired to do the uh, the paid analysis is Insights and Experimentation Agency uh, Brooks Bell. So they came to uh, test participants, and they gave them one of th- they gave them three options. First, everyone started with GNOME three point three eight, which is the old version of GNOME. Then they had one of two choices: they either had the new redesign of GNOME forty, or they used Endless OS. Okay, now if you're not familiar with Endless OS, Endless OS is a is a GNOME-based operating system that based on Linux that really tries to close the digital divide by providing all of the necessary resources you need right on the operating system. So, for example, when you go up and look up Wikipedia, you don't have to be on the Internet to look up Wikipedia. It's all right there on, on, on the local machine. Um, they also have a very, very intuitive UI um, and they've tried to customize it to make it as easy and approachable for most users as possible. It included both uh, the testing that they did with Endless and this new design of GNOME 40 included both experienced GNOME users as well as some who had never used GNOME before. It included a mix of professional and non-professional users, so they're trying to get as large of a sample size as possible. They conducted this research in six, country, six countries, Brazil, Canada, Germany, Italy, UK, and the USA. They had some UI conventions that the users were already familiar with. And what they found was when GNOME followed the same UI paradigms that already existed in other operating systems, users were very happy with it and they responded very positively to it. And conversely, if it was something that they had not seen in other UI conventions, it was alien to them. Now, they found that there were conventions present from both mobile and desktop operating system, it didn't seem to matter as long as the user had a way to experience it sometime before they were perfectly comfortable using it on GNOME. All of the users seemed to find the new workspaces more engaging and more intuitive, regardless of if they were using Endless OS or the GNOME 40 redesign. New users were able to get going much faster with Endless OS as opposed uh, to the GNOME 40 40 redesign, probably because of the similarities to Windows. Additionally, the bottom panel, they say, makes it much easier to switch windows. This is, of course, referring to Endless OS because they have a bottom panel, which where Stock Gnome, of course, does not. One particular quote from a tester that really struck, stuck with me, uh, he said, or she said, everything happens naturally after you go to activities. The computer is working for you. You're not working for it. And the reason that stuck with me is because I have seen a constant push uh, anytime something doesn't work or doesn't work well, and it doesn't matter if it's open source or proprietary, doesn't matter if it's mobile or desktop, something doesn't work, something doesn't fit the user's need, there's, there's this onus to come back and tell the user why they're wrong and why that's right. And, you know, at AltaSpeed Technologies, we spend a lot of time, in fact, we have a weekly discussion on how can we reduce friction to our clients? How can we make it easier for people to come into our lives, ask us to help them, and then get back to them and serve those clients well? And so I hate the idea that I would have to change the way that I do something for my technology. It should be the other way around. The techno- the tail don't wag the dog, okay? It shouldn't it should the, the computer and the operating system should mold around the way that I want to use my computer. And this is something that I felt for a long time that KDE does very well. There's almost always two or three ways to accomplish any given task in KDE, and that makes for an incredibly inviting and flexible working environment. I can use KRunner if I want to get a lo- application to launch, or I can hit the, the super key and launch it from my, my app menu. 
we're going to talk about this later in the episode. In the latest version of Plasma, there is a new app launcher. One of the reasons that that doesn't concern me is because even if it wasn't for me, first of all, I can go back to the old app launcher. But additionally, there's more than one way to skin a cat in KDE. I'm glad to see that this is something that GNOME is signing on to. Now, by contrast, I've always found that GNOME uh, you first have to understand the GNOME way of doing things, then it makes sense to do things their way. And indeed, as I said before, if you do things the GNOME way, there is logic and reason behind it, and it tends to work fairly well. But the amount of time and research that they've put into this clearly shows us that there is a changing landscape, that people want to be able to sit down and they have a given set of expectations on how they want to interact with window environments, how they want to switch apps, how gestures, all of those things, uh, those are becoming more and more ingrained in people and they have those expectations. Another thing I'll add, the process of doing stuff like this out in the open where everybody can understand it, where everybody can read it is amazing to me. It's one thing to write a really great project. It's something else entirely to write a really great project and then take the time to explain to people why you've made those decisions. And it gets us, people like me, geeks, excited when I get to sit down and say, oh, that's what you were trying to do. That's why you did it that way. Well, that's really fantastic. I really want to play with that. I really want to understand that. Even if it's not for me, at that point, I have broadened my perspective. You've helped me understand that there is another way to look at that problem or to approach that thing. And even if it's not right for me today, it might be right for me down the road. That was certainly the case with tiling window managers. The very first time I saw it, I said to myself, why in the world would I want to use a desktop environment in which I can't actually use my mouse the way I would be expected to, or the way that I would expect to use my mouse? Why would I want to arbitrarily limit myself? to how I can move windows and adjust them. And of course, the answer that I learned later on was because sometimes there is an efficiency advantage in not moving your windows around or resizing them with a mouse, but having them conform to a predefined set of standards. That was perspective that I was introduced to after it was explained to me why and how Xmonad works. What this series of blog posts that the GNOME Foundation is doing is showing us is exemplifying and demonstrating why they're making the decisions that they're making. And when you couple that with the research that they are now explaining to us, we now have real time, almost real time insight into, hey, we asked you guys what is it you like about GNOME? What is it you don't like about GNOME? And as we go through this redesign process, let's make sure to get it right. We define right by making sure that we meet your expectations. We understand your expectations because we've asked these questions, we've gotten these answers, so we've made these changes. They are lowering the friction for onboarding of new people to come to GNOME. They are lowering the friction for people that already work in GNOME to have a better working environment, and there has never been a better time for them to take this initiative on. As Martin Wimpers departs from Canonical, I think myself and some other people have some concerns about where the future of, uh, uh, where the priority of the Linux desktop is going to remain for Canonical. As Red Hat focuses more on Fedora and scales back what they're doing um, with Red Hat on desktops and CentOS altogether, um, I, I think, again, it sends a pretty clear message that a lot of these companies are looking up and saying, hey, you know what? The desktop is great. A lot of us use it here internally, and we're going to continue to do that. And, of course, there's a lot of community projects that are doing that. But you know where the money is? It's in servers. You know what has 95-plus percent of the market share? Linux servers. So you know what we're going to spend the majority of our time on? Linux servers. And I'm 100% okay with that because 
that is where our that is where our leverage is. That is where we should be. That is where Linux is most exciting. At the same time, I don't want to run two different operating systems. I want to run the same operating system on my laptop as I run on my desktop or as I run on the servers, as I run on the desktop. And so having a desktop environment foundation that's largely funded by Red Hat, I might add, allows allows them to continue to focus on the things that aren't going to make a lot of money but are still very important to people like us. Again, one 450 no that's 855-450-6624. The email, live at asknoahshow.com. Your calls go to the front of the line. We'll take them all hour long. I wanted to give you guys an update on the Vero 4K. If you're not familiar with the Vero 4K, it is a streaming media player, entirely open source, based on Cody. And so what this organization has done is built like the ideal Cody box. So, of course, it couldn't resist, had to have one. They shipped one over. And uh, my, my initial impressions were this very well-packaged system, incredible UI, incredible UI. I almost couldn't believe that it was Cody underneath. It looked gorgeous. The other thing that I thought was particularly uh, awesome was they include the ability to use both an IR and RF remote. The way that they've accomplished that is the following. They've taken the RF receiver and RF remote that, by the way, they sell as an outboard accessory. So if you don't have the Vero 4K, you can still take advantage of what I'm about to explain. And they package that with the Vero 4K. So you take the Vero 4K out, you plug the receiver in, and now this RF remote works. But if you want to use an IR receiver, they have built-in ports on the back that allow you to plug in an IR receiver and do it that way. I wasn't in, I wasn't thrilled with that layout because in the NVIDIA Shield, in the Pro Edition, the 2017, before they removed IR, it was built right into the device, and so I didn't have to have any additional dongles or anything like that. Now, the company, Inoset, who I have recommended their universal remotes numerous times, they actually make it a USB IR receiver that you can plug into the Shield. And so that option already existed for me. Now, the option that the Vero 4K has, it's not USB. It plugs in with a 2 point, or excuse me, 3.5-inch um, plug. So it's it was clearly part of their design process, but there's still an IR receiver thing hanging out. Uh, they include a wall mounting plate, which I thought was fantastic because one of my large concerns right off the bat was I have wall mounting equipment so that I can get the NVIDIA Shield to essentially float right under the TV. You don't see any of the wires. It's all runs behind the TV. I thought that was really fantastic. I was really hoping that there would be a way to do that with the Vero. Turns out I don't have to worry about somebody making a wall plate for the Vero because they include it. Uh, as for performance, you fire the thing up, it feels snappy. It really does. Uh, plays DVDs just fine. Plays most MKVs just fine. It doesn't stream Blu-rays over Wi-Fi. And that was kind of a disappointment to me. Now, in full disclosure, I have not found a device that perfectly streams uh, a, a, a 4K Blu-ray over Wi-Fi. Um, so I, 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 it's not a huge hit, but on the Vero 4K, it was noticeably worse than other devices. Um, and, and, and not any more than it would have been on like, let's say the Raspberry Pi with Cody. Um, but certainly it was worse than it would have been on the Nvidia Shield. And so my end conclusion was this. It is absolutely the best pre-made Cody box on the market. There's no question about it. And it's, it still falls short of the shield with Cody on it. And part of that is, and I, I want to be clear about this, part of that is that the IR version of the shield, the one that was made in 2017, you can only get them at this point on eBay. And they're almost three times the price of the, uh, of the VR4K. And apart from that, if I just bought a new NVIDIA shield and just tolerated the fact that it came with an RF remote, it's still twice the price of the VR4K. 
Um, and so I, at, where I get to with that is it's a great gift idea for family members. It's a great – I have considered putting one in my RV. I have one in my house that I use in one particular room in my house. But at the end of the day, when I'm looking for media streaming solutions, I want the same exact solution in every room of the house. And right now, the Vera 4K doesn't appear to be the thing that I could use everywhere. Still seems like the NVIDIA Shield may be a better choice. Although I have to say, NVIDIA putting a microphone on the remote, I really like the idea of just having a FOSS box uh, that's not running Android and doesn't have a microphone. So that's pretty fantastic. Plasma 5.21 has been released. The highlight? A new app launcher. Uh, the new app launcher features categories that break out the individual applications, favorites, and group app groupings. They've also redone the power menu. So if you're familiar with the current KDE uh, layout, you're going to click on the uh, on the menu, and then you're going to click leave, and then you're prompted with a uh, a message dialog box asking you how you'd like to leave. Would you like to suspend, log out, shut down, restart, those kinds of things? Well, they've done away with that, and instead now those power options are right along the bottom which I think is a major improvement. I think it's going to help people, particularly those that are not familiar with KDE. They've introduced a new theme. This, is, I thought, was a pretty unique approach to solving this problem. Breeze Twilight. It is a hybrid theme. And so it goes something like this. A lot of people like a dark theme, to include myself. However, there are certain applications that they don't want the applications to be dark. They just want the rest, like the, the bar at the bottom and the windows and stuff like that to be dark. Well, Breeze Twilight it tries to split that difference. So it's for people who like Breeze Dark for the desktop UI, but they want their QT or KDE applications to use a light theme. And so you have the option of doing that now with Breeze Twilight. The other thing they've added is Plasma Firewall Settings page. Now, the new Firewall Settings module lets you set up, edit, and manage a firewall for the system that you're providing uh, support to in a graphical front-end device to both UFW and Firewall D. More effort has been poured into bringing up Wayland support in Plasma, and the KDE devs say that they've refactored much of the code in KWIN, the desktop's window manager, to reduce latency. The other way you're going to try this right now, if you want to check it out, we invite you to check out KDE Neon. KDE Neon is essentially an Ubuntu base with the latest version of KDE, so you can try it. Now, some people have asked, well, what's the difference between Kubuntu and KDE Neon? The difference between Kubuntu and KDE Neon is simply that in Kubuntu, you're waiting for the next LTS or the next release to come out, assuming you're not on the point releases. Um, whereas KDE Neon is, is, it is a distro specifically in existence to allow you to try out the next version of KDE. Pine has a whole plethora of updates. So they've updated their blog. Uh, they include a dedicated link to their blog now when you go to pine64.com. So I would invite you to check that out. They are, they are the, the, the shining example of what it means to be a open source company doing things in open source. So we're going to get through this fast as we can. Chinese New Year's is upon us. That means that things in China are not being made or not being shipped. They're hoping to resume that late February, which is when their next shipping uh, will be adding on uh, adding to that they ha they are releasing a the the quartz 64a this is a single board computer the hardware is nearly completed it's very similar to the rock pro 64 except this is not designed to be a professional board the main difference is the q64 has an extra uh the the excuse me the Q64 has an extra USB 2.0 and does not have USB-C. Uh, it contains integrated battery charging, which uh, which is great. Uh, fully, it, it enables the user to use the device fully on battery. Uh, 
includes up to 8 gigs of RAM, uh, has support for the new 10-inch display that they plan on releasing in the Pine Store later. They measured 10 to 15 percent, excuse me, 15 to 25 percent slower than the Rock Pro. Um, but again, this is not a pro-grade SBC. Uh, performance, they're comparing it similar to the Raspberry Pi 4. Although, as much as I love Pine and I would say that I'm, I stop, no, I don't stop short. I am a fanboy of, 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 of Pine 64. I, I would still tell you that the Raspberry Pi has a longer track record and so I'm, I'd be interested in playing with the, the Quartz 64A, but if I was, Comparing it to the Raspberry Pi 4, probably just go with the Raspberry Pi 4 because nothing wrong with that board either. Uh, the Pinebook Pro, got, uh, they're going to resume production again after Chinese New Year. Uh, they believe that you'll be able to place your pre-orders in mid-March. If you want more information on that, we suggest that you follow their Telegram news channel, which is where they release a lot of the updates. And they're going to come to an end of the Community Edition. Now, if you're not familiar with the Community Edition of the Pine Phone, essentially it was this. They partnered with software manufacturers like Manjaro Arm, Mobian, to produce a pre-packaged bundle that you could just purchase from the Pine Store, and it came pre-installed with your operating system of choice. And so they rotated through the community, and with each one of those rotations, they had a different backplate cover uh, that they shipped with the phone, which was pretty cool. And obviously... Uh, a lot of people really like that. So to try to keep uh, to appease the people that really liked having the, those customizations to the phone, but also not have a million different phones that really all do the same thing. They just have a different operating systems loaded onto it. They are going to sell the back covers for fifteen dollars, but it gets better. The ten dollars from the sale of the fifteen dollar back uh, backplate for the phone is going to go to the project. So if you buy a Mobian edition backplate, $10 is going to go to Mobian. If you buy a uh, Manjaro ARM backplate, then $10 is going to go to that project. They've also announced that the default OS going forward will be Manjaro Plasma. And that's t- really kind of caught me off guard, if I'm being honest with you, because the rest of the... I've tried one. One mobile distro on the Pine phone that used Plasma Mobile, and frankly, it wasn't a terribly great experience. Some of the stuff didn't even work. Um... But they say that the Manjaro Plasma Mobile offers the best experience today. And while the rest of a lot of other mobile OS to include Postmarket OS, Manjaro Arm, they're all using Posh, which is kind of the uh, mobile version of GNOME. They believe that there is a consistent, that, that this is going to provide a better experience to the end user. And so I'm all on board with that because the truth is, I have such a consistent experience on the desktop that I would love to see that on mobile. I would particularly like to see what, when default applications and, and, and menus and different features come to Plasma, that that's available to me both on my mobile operating system on my phone as well as my laptop. And so new Plasma features and stuff like that, it's going to be really cool to get those. Uh, they have done a ton of work on things like the modem, including porting the mainline Linux kernel, open sourcing the user space. Uh, the modem now handles calls better when the phone is suspended. Uh, the modem is able to boot kernel 5.10. They have established the ability to initialize the modem, establish a data connection, make CS and VOLTE calls without any binaries. Uh, the only problem is receiving calls currently don't work. This again is with this, uh, with the a completely open sourced kernel running the modem. Obviously, if you're using stock, it's, it both sends and receives calls, no problem. Uh, the slow recovery of suspending and losing texts and calls this is when the phone goes into suspend. They were having some issues with that. They believe that fixes to the phone have fixed the wake up for incoming calls or texts. They've also open sourced the bootloader. There are three new versions of the Infinity Time. This is the Pine Time uh, smartwatch. Uh, it now includes a heart 
heart rate monitor and a navigation application. They have a demo of that. Uh, on their website, they're going to release the first Risk Five SPC. Now, this is going to feature two CPUs. The main being a C906 64-bit CPU. The secondary being a 32-bit BL602 SOC. That's going to be used for Wi-Fi and Bluetooth. Now, the C906 is already running completely top to bottom FOSS software. The 602 is trying to be open source thanks to their Nutcracker challenge. They hope to achieve that. The goal here is to try to make a $15 Risk. 5 SBC. Uh, their phones are going to be adopting the LoRa standard. It will be part of Pine 64, the LoRa module for all devices. LoRa is, they're also going to be making a LoRa base station for both indoor and outdoor use. For more information, you can visit pine64.org. Hey, the music in my ears means we're out of time. Thanks for joining us. We record this episode live every Tuesday. You can follow us on Twitter at Ask Noah Show. We'll be back next Tuesday, AskNoahShow.com. Show.com.